1: Hello and welcome to the New Books Network. I'm your host, Jennifer Yerimeeva, and today we have a history book that reads just like a novel. And indeed, I think it's only a matter of time before the likes of Netflix or Amazon Prime pounce on this book, if they haven't already, which is not to decry its serious scholarship in any way. The book is Queens of Jerusalem by Catherine Pangonis, and its subject is the formidable group of women who ruled the kingdoms, principalities, and counties of Outremer, the Christian states carved out after the First Crusade in 1099. Beautifully written, meticulously researched, and I will also add extremely well narrated by the author in its audio form, this is an aspect of medieval history that doesn't get a lot of airtime or hasn't until now, because I feel sure that with Queens of Jerusalem, there will be a surge of interest in these powerful, decisive, and colorful female rulers of Utremer, brought to life so vividly and capably by Catherine Pangonis. I enjoyed the book immensely, and I'm delighted that it brings Catherine to the New Books Network. Catherine, welcome.
2: Thank you so much, and thanks for your kind words. It's great to be here.
1: Good. Well, before we uh, plunge into the heart of the book, there's so much to discuss, but I would like to start with how you came to the subject and why you found it so compelling.
2: Oh, thanks for asking. Well, yeah, it started a long time ago when I was about 16, actually, um, because I studied the Crusades at A-level, which is, you know, the UK high school course. um, And I loved the periods. I loved learning about the Middle East. I loved learning about the Middle Ages, and I loved learning about the interaction between sort of Eastern and Western cultures at this time and and how that feeds into the politics in this region today and, yeah, history that's still playing out today. And But what I noticed at the time is that while we touched on some really interesting women in the course, you know, names like Melisande of Jerusalem and Alice of Antioch came up, there wasn't really a lot of information about them. And, you know, my teachers couldn't really direct me to any other material that I could use to learn more about them. Um, There were no books written about the Queens of Jerusalem or the Princess of Antioch or any of these women. And there were a handful of academic essays, but they weren't that easy to get hold of. You know, They're in sort of university libraries and sort of uh, academic journals and such. Um, But I didn't think very much about it at the time. I just thought it was a shame. Um, And I went on to do my university studies and actually, after I finished I finished my master's in medieval history, I looked again for a book on this because I considered writing on this topic for my dissertation. And I realized there was still nothing. So at that time, I thought, well, now, you know, with my, you know, university education behind me, I'm actually in a position to go and do something about filling this gap, because so many books are written on the Crusades every year. And it seemed crazy to me that still no one had dealt with the women. So I thought it was a good good way for me to break in, really.
1: And so how did you go about finding information about these women?
2: Well, it's an interesting question. There are a few ways, but the main one was to go back to the chronicles. Um, So during the Crusades, we're really lucky because there's a wealth of source material from the period and immediately afterwards. The people at the time who were living in this part of the world and living through these wars and these movements were very much aware that they were living through really pivotal moments in world history. And hmm. so they wrote a lot of things down. Um, and the, the one of the best historians of the Middle Ages is a man called William of Tyre. Um, and he wrote this really amazing chronicle about, it was called The Deeds Done Beyond the Sea. Um, so the deeds, the deeds of Men and Nutrimer. The, and it's the history of the Crusader kingdoms. And so my starting point was to go and go through his chronicle with a fine-tooth comb, looking for every single reference I could to the women that I write about in my book and sort of tease those out and then try and look at them with fresh eyes and do the same for the other chronicles of the period so the guest of francorum is one albert of archen is another and put together, you know sort of make a table of all the information i could get about each woman and then try and piece together their lives into narrative history and to and to actually reassess who they were and what they were like because you know william for all that he was a wonderful historian and he really was was imbued with all the sort of sexism misogyny of his time you know the men writing the history at this time they were churchmen you know they were celibate they didn't live with women and women didn't feature heavily in their lives so it's not necessarily sort of an active sexism but they just you know they didn't really understand women and they preferred to ignore what they didn't understand so they just don't make a huge appearance and so and often what they write about women are laden with medieval value judgments, which actually really muddy the waters for historians trying to get a sense of who these people were. So it's to sort of peel all of that back just and establish the facts and then look at that with a much more neutral eye. And so what I hope comes across when I've in the book that I've written is that, you know, these women weren't necessarily heroines. They weren't always the goodies. Um, you know, some of them were very flawed individuals, but they were very vital, very ambitious, very strong women and who deserved to be viewed through an impartial lens.
1: Well, it, I, and, and I think you succeed very well. Um, and I love the way throughout the book William of Tyre seems to be kind of a, almost a character in the book because um, mm-hmm. you kind of say, "Well, he says this, but you know, we should take it take it with a grain of salt." Um, he's mm-hmm. kind of like the, the annoying uncle,
0: <laughs>
2: wow. <over> <laughs> but you.
1: also. You also did a lot of legwork for this book. Um, You mentioned in the introduction that a lot of it was written in the places um, where the action takes place. Uh, The old city of Jerusalem in Turkey, Lebanon. You're in in Lebanon right now, I think, yeah?
2: Mm -hmm. Uh, Yes, exactly. I'm in Tire, actually. I'm about 20 meters from William Cathedral. It's very exciting.
1: (laughs) How did did you um, organize that travel, and how did it shape the process of of writing the book?
2: Um, Well, it's... The travel has been absolutely central to A, the joy of writing this book and B, just to the research process. Because, as I was saying, you know, in a lot of these chronicles, we don't get a lot about the women. You know, um, the only physical description we have of the central woman in my book, Queen Melisande, is through a description of her son. You know, William of Tyre describes what her son looks like. And he says, you know, he was he was sort of tall and lean. And in this way, he resembled his mother. And so we can say, Mm. OK, through that, we can work out that she's tall and lean. But we don't get a lot and so for me in terms of trying to get to grips with who these people were who these women were and how they functioned actually you know coming to the the places that they they lived in looking at you know the landscapes that they looked on treading the stones they once trod on walking through the archways they once walked underneath is central to really trying to connect with these figures um, and to giving a sense of atmosphere to the book and i think you know creating atmosphere and sort of strong characters in this um, this narrative was really important to me because I think it is the difference between sort of quite dusty, quite difficult to read academic texts and the sort of books which, you know, the public want to read. And I wanted to, you know, tell these stories to as many people as possible and, you know, keep people's interests. So it was important for me to, to put the atmosphere and the passion into it. And one of the enduring legacies of some of the women of this period, most notably Melisande, is that they were patrons of architecture. Mm -hmm. You know, so buildings that Melisande commissioned to be built are still standing as some of the most important buildings in Jerusalem to this day. You know, the castle that Melisande and her sisters were born in, in Edessa, it's now called Shanyurfa in Turkey, that's still there. So going to these places really gives you a sense of the world they inhabited. There's so much that's still left physically in the landscape.
1: Right. And the, the events that take place in the book have, have very much shaped the reality of, of the landscape today. And and as I was listening to, to your audio um, book, I was also following the events in um, Israel with the clashes with the Palestinians. And I had this odd sense that the past and the present were sort of m- fusing uh, in a way because so much of... Um, the, the current conflict was shaped by by the the Crusades and the events in Uuchremer so let's let's start for our listeners who don't know um, all the details of this history with um, what is Uremer and how is it established
2: so it's a really interesting question and thank you for you know relating it to the modern politics of the day because it's incredibly painful to see what's going on and I won't go into this it's very political and this isn't the forum but it's it's really important to make these connections and to see the the legacy of European history in the Middle East. And, you know, I think, you know, as Europeans and Americans, we do have a, a duty to take an interest. Um Uchmer is, you know, it's a really problematic state. And you know, you it's it's essentially area of land conquered by the Christians um from Muslim inhabitants. And you know, there's there are all these arguments that, you know, Chris the Christians had this before because the lands that the, the, the Seljuk Turks and other other Arabic peoples are inhabiting at this time, you know, they did belong to the Byzantine Empire long ago, but they, you're going hundreds of years back. And then, um, not always, but sometimes you're going hundreds of years back. And, you know, there's been a history of holy war uh, of Christians fighting for Jerusalem since the Emperor Heraclius in sort of, I think he was around 600, 700. I've got my exact dates. So this has been going on for a long time. And basically what happens in the late 11th century is there's this epic battle called the Battle of Manzikert, where the Byzantine Empire, which is the vestiges of the Roman Empire in the East, and the Christian Empire, suffer a huge defeat by the Turks and are driven out of a lot of their lands in the Holy Land in Anatolia. And you know, following this, come some decades later, they send this plea to Western Europe to send soldiers to come and help them reclaim these lands. And this is you know one of the things that sparks the crusading movement. But the official party line for the crusading movement is that they want to liberate the holy places that um, that you know the Muslim inhabitants are persecuting Christian pilgrims, they're desecrating Christ's tomb in Jerusalem and the Christians Crusaders want to get this back and um, found it as a Christian state in the east and then so thats you know that's what they do. they go over there there are lots of setbacks but they manage to take Jerusalem. they massacre the inhabitants. It's one of the most shocking uh, narratives in medieval source history, the massacres of Jerusalem. I mean, even the Christians who write about it are disgusted by what the Crusaders did. And then they take this land, and they manage to hold it, they hold Jerusalem for just under 100 years, and also lands beyond it. And so Utreme is made up of these four Crusader states, is what they come to be known as, essentially sort of proto-colonies, which are called the Kingdom of Jerusalem, which is the most important. Then the Principality of Antioch, which centres around sort of southern Turkey and Syria, today, then the county of Tripoli, which sort of follows similar lines to modern-day Lebanon, and the county of Edessa, which again is southern Turkey now. Um, and yeah, so then these states are ruled by different knights, but to varying degrees, they they pay lip service to the king of Jerusalem.
1: Okay. Um, and how do the rulers get chosen?
2: Oh, that's a really good question. Um, the, you know, there's no such thing as an election, really, in these days. As, it, as we get a bit later and succession becomes a bit murkier, then you do have sort of Instances of the local barons, you know, sort of nominating their preferred candidate and such, and the most popular guy taking power. But you know, the original rulers were the men who conquered uh, who conquered the territory. So Mm -hmm. um, the first ruler, the first ruler of the Principality of Antioch, was this man Bermond of Taranto, who actually, you know, for all that the Crusade was meant to be about pilgrimage to Jerusalem, once he'd captured Antioch, he didn't go a step further. You know, he stayed in Antioch, (laughs) kept the territory. So he held Antioch and then he, in various ways, passed it down to his descendants. So, you know, his nephew took over after he after he was driven out of the east. Then eventually his son would come and take power, but he didn't last very long. You know, so they try and follow medieval dynastic traditions. Um, and in Jerusalem, once again, you know, you have the first king of Jerusalem. He doesn't actually take the title of king. He just calls himself defender of Jerusalem because he defender of the Holy Sepulchre because he doesn't want to. He says Christ is the only king in Jerusalem. But he, mm. that's Godfrey de Bouillon. He dies without children. So then it passes to his brother, who likewise dies without children. So then it passes to his cousin, who is Baldwin II. And from Baldwin II, it passes to the women in my book. Um, you know, he, ha- he only has four daughters. And three of them rise to very, you know, positions of great power. That Melisande, his eldest daughter, becomes queen of Jerusalem. Alice, his second daughter, becomes princess of Antioch. Chodierna, his third daughter, becomes the countess of Tripoli. And Yvette, his youngest daughter, actually, she's held hostage as a small child, and that makes her unmarriageable. So she, you might expect her to become the countess of Odessa, but that doesn't happen. She actually enters a nunnery. But she wields a mm. lot of power from there. So...
1: But but there was no um, there was no block to to these women assuming uh, the power, um, which is in the West um, in Western Europe, which is very much the counterpart of these um, Crusader mm-hmm. states. What's different about Outremer that allows these women to to take power?
2: It's a cultural block, which is that you know female rulership is considered you know worst case scenario. If you can if there isn't an eligible male heir they might take a woman. So, you know, there is precedent of women ruling, but generally it's when their husbands are killed in battle and it's until they can be married off to someone else, or it's them ruling on behalf of their son until he comes as of age, or, you know, they're holding down the fort while her husband's away fighting somewhere else. It's very rare and it's it's really it's really undesirable for a woman to be given power in her own right because women aren't generally considered... Capable of rulership at this time, and in most cases, they also aren't educated for it. And there are barriers that stop women, you know, necessarily being as successful rulers as men, because a big part of rulership at this time is military leadership, and mm-hmm. women just are not trained for the battlefield at this time. You know, men, you know, they're one of the key parts of their education. The medieval world is fighting and military strategy, and women aren't given this education. So it, it's it's it focuses on those differences why women aren't wanted in power. But in the Middle East at this time, this becomes less of a barrier because of the unique instability of the region. I mean, these are states that, the Crusader states, Outremer, these are places which haven't existed for very long, and their existence teeters on a razor's edge all the time. Um, They are constantly fighting at their borders. There are constantly raids into their lands and the male rulers are dying left, right, and center. And mm. The life expectancy for a native-born Christian king in Jerusalem is sort of mid-20s. Um, they don't live very long. Whereas mm-hmm. if you compare that to native-born kings in France, they're living to their 50s and 60s generally. Um, mm. And also, you know, there's just the the genetic issue, which is that by pure chance more daughters are being born to the rulers than sons and the daughters are surviving longer partly because the chance of a fight you know a medieval warrior being killed on the battlefield whereas women you know aren't needing the armies so they tend to survive for longer and you know from that they can actually accrue quite a lot of polit- political loyalty and political weight which can enable them to take the take thrones more smoothly
1: Right. Well, let's look at these four sisters um, individually. We we begin with Queen Melisande, who is a fascinating character. She lives for a long time and she wields incredible power. And you make the point in the book that she was well prepared um, for Mm -hmm. her future role. Um, Her father assumes uh, she will be his, his heir, his successor. How was she prepared and what contributed to her success as a ruler, as the Queen of Jerusalem?
2: So she's the eldest of four daughters, and I think her father, you know, makes a decision quite early on that he isn't necessarily, that he isn't going to divorce his wife. So a lot of medieval monarchs, if their wives only give birth to girls, they generally blame their wives. They don't know that actually sex is determined by sperm rather than eggs. So they always blame their wives, and they often shut them up in nunneries or find pretenses to divorce them and start over. But, you know, either because he's religious or he genuinely loves his wife, Morphia. Melaton's father doesn't do this at any point. And, you know, so once he's had his four daughters and he can see that, you know, his wife is unlikely to have more children, he's away all the time and so on, he must start facing up to the the, the likelihood that his eldest daughter is going to succeed him. And with that in mind, you know, he he sets about making sure she is prepared. And also there's another facet to this, which is he needs to signal to potential husbands for her, that this is the one who's going to inherit the throne because obviously Melisande is much more attractive as a bride if she comes with the crown of Jerusalem. Mm. And so the ways he prepares her and shows that she is going to inherit is he starts including her at meetings of the high council of the kingdom from a young age, you know, from her teens, she's witnessing charters. And from later on, she's also giving consent and she's named in the, the charters very specifically as daughter of the king of Jerusalem and heir to the kingdom and stuff like this. So it's clear that he's preparing her for rulership. We also know, which isn't from his actions on his deathbed, that he absolutely intended her to have real power and not be, you know, her husband's puppet. Because on his deathbed, Baldwin II changes his will so that instead of leaving power to Melisand and her husband, uh, instead of just leaving power to Melisande's husband, he leaves it in jointly in three parts to Melisande, her husband, and her son. And in doing so, he gives Melisande legal right to rule, you know, not just as the consort of a husband, but as a queen regnant. And that's a really important distinction between queen consort and queen mm-hmm. regnant. Um, consorts are, you know, the wives, of, uh, the wives of the kings, but queen regnants can rule in their own right. And so we can see from that decision that Baldwin is planning for Melisande to rule for a long time and making sure she's ready for the challenges that will bring with it.
1: And let's, let's touch a little bit on her, her, her sort of choppy marriage to Fulk, who who emerges yes. as an interesting character. <laughs> this is a, this is a choppy marriage that ends kind of happily, but, but it's, um, it's a rough road, <laughs> isn't it?
2: Yes. No, so she and Fulk, I mean, it's a power struggle. I mean, you have to think, I mean, with a lot of these queens and their relationships with their husbands, you, you do have to, you can let your mind wander to Game of Thrones a bit. There are, there are parallels. There is a struggle for power. <laughs> Because Fulk is a count in France, he's the count of Anjou, and he's tempted over to marry Melisande with the promise that he will be king of Jerusalem. And he's older, you know, he's had his career in France, and he's clearly got strong dynastic ambitions because he already has a grown-up son when he marries Melisande. And his son is, has been married to Matilda of England, who is theoretically, although she doesn't have an easier time succeeding to power as Melisande, she's theoretically the heir to the English throne. So we can see that Fulk is really setting him, his, himself and his family up as sort of kings. So he's very interested in this. and this is why he gets tempted over to the east and he leaves behind his lovely county in France to come to this very this very unstable kingdom. And you know the only reason he's been tempted to do this and he brings a lot of, he brings a lot of good stuff with him. He brings soldiers and he brings money which the Kingdom of Jerusalem needs and he brings military expertise and so they want him and he comes because he's going to be king of Jerusalem. that's the understanding. And he definitely doesn't come with the intention of sharing the, ki- the power of the kingdom of Jerusalem with a woman in her 20s. That's just not on his agenda. He's there <laughs> to be king, have a nice young wife and, you know, have some heirs who will carry his bloodline on and be kings of Jerusalem after him. So this manoeuvre of Baldwin II on his deathbed to, to split the power of Jerusalem between three must be galling to Fulk. He's furious. And uh-huh. for the first few years of their reign, he really has no intention of letting Melisande wield that power that her father has left her, and this this is a problem because Melisande is popular. You know, she's the daughter of one of the great you know crusading heroes of the First Crusade. She's half Armenian, half French, so she really represents the cultural mix in the Kingdom of Jerusalem, and you know she you know she she's native of that region. Mm-hmm. And whereas Fulke is a foreigner, so when you know other barons see that. Folk is taking power away from his wife, they will see this as an invasion of sorts. You know, this is unwanted foreign influence and it's sort of choking the rights of their princess. And one of the biggest proponents of this argument, that Melison should have more power, is her cousin Hugh of Jaffa, who happens to be very, very attractive. William of Tyre clearly appreciates male beauty. He writes pages and pages about sexy men and very little about women. Um, and he really, he really uses his creative his creative powers to show us just how beautiful Hugh of Jaffa is. Um, and because you have a young queen spending a lot of time with her slightly rebellious and very attractive cousin, cu- being cousins wasn't a, big, wasn't a big deal when it came to sexual relationships in the Middle Ages, um, rumours start to swirl that Melisande and Hugh of Jaffa are having an affair. And mm-hmm. this, this brings out Fulk's nasty side. And, and Fulk asks actually one of Hugh's stepsons, Hugh's married as well, to challenge Hugh to trial by combat for for dishonouring the queen. And Hugh, when he sees the size of his opponents, massive guy in the Chronicles mm-hmm. it says how big he is, flees and he doesn't show up for the fight. And this, this leads, and then this leads to him being proclaimed a traitor. And this tips the kingdom into a sort of civil war, actually, because you have you have different factions fighting. And but you know, the king, the king of Jerusalem, folks, you know, is the stronger party and he puts down the rebellion. Um, but then, and Fulk, um, and Hugh is punished, and he's sentenced to being exiled to Italy. And while he's waiting for his boat to be exiled to Italy, he, there's an assassination attempt made on his life, and he doesn't die straight away, but he dies shortly after. And everyone in the kingdom, including Melisande, think this is Fulk's doing, and this mm. causes a huge rift between Fulk and his wife because you know, you know, even if Melisande wasn't having an affair with Hugh, which I think is unlikely, even if she wasn't. He's her cousin and her close confidence and someone who stood up for her interests. And, you know, she probably believes that her husband has just tried to have him killed, you know, illegally. And while we might think of the Middle Ages as a sort of a bloodthirsty time period, it's also the period in which the ideas of chivalry emerge. And so sort of stabbing someone in the back really isn't done. You know, it's, it, assassination is not as common as you might think it is. So this is this is a shocking thing. Um But, you know, we don't, you know, we don't have definitive proof that Fulk does this. Maybe he convinces Melazon that he didn't. But the point is, is her anger is so spectacular that after this point, Fulk is frightened of his wife. Like the Chronicles (laughs) say, after this point, he's not making any decisions without her express permission. Um, And from this point on, they rule together. And then we see that they do make peace because they have another son a few years later. Mm-hmm. And also we have this amazing object, which most historians of this period believe was a peace offering given from Falk to his wife. It's called the Melazon Psalter. And it's a very exquisitely decorated and illuminated prayer book made, made in the scriptorium of the kingdom of Jerusalem. And because of the fact that Melus, the dates of Melazon's parents' death are included in it, Mm-hmm. and the, the richness of the decorations and also the multicultural influence you have greek influence armenian influence syriac influence arabic influence it's believed that this was a peace offering from Fulk to his wife so yes and after after this episode they get on much better and actually the kingdom of jerusalem flourishes under their sort of joint rulership um and so yes we can see that as a as a yeah, happy ending of sorts the issue mm-hmm. is that Falk then dies in a hunting accident when he's, you know, comparatively quite young and his children are still very young. And this is what actually allows Melzen to rule in her own right. Because after he dies, she manages to step into into his shoes and rule single-handed on behalf of her children.
0: This episode is brought to you by Shopify. Do you have a point of sale system you can trust or is it a real POS? You need Shopify for retail. From accepting payments to managing inventory, Shopify POS has everything you need to sell in person. Go to shopify.com system, all lowercase, to take your retail business to the next level today. That's shopify.com system.
1: Uh, a happy ending indeed. <laughs> where is the Psalter?
2: Where's the Psalter? It's in the it sounds like Apple. you've
1: actually seen it um, yes, and, and examined it. Um, where is it?
2: It's in the British Library in London, oh, um, and it's kept under close guard. Um, you have uh-huh. to sort of write begging letters to the curators explaining why you need to be shown this document and all these things. And they, they won't let leave you alone in a room with it, and they won't let uh-huh. you touch it. Um, but you have to ask them very nicely to turn the pages for you. But it, it's truly beautiful. It's got ivory covers laid with rubies and turquoise, and then all the pages oh, wow. are decorated with gold leaf, and it's, it's gorgeous. It's really a beautiful, beautiful manuscript.
1: Well, you describe it so, so compellingly um, in the book, and, and, it, and it, that sort of stuck in my mind as, as one of the great talismans of, of this period. And there aren't, uh, there aren't that many, are there?
2: No, there aren't. There, I mean, there are no other objects that we can say with any certainty belongs to a queen of Jerusalem or a princess of Antioch and such. So, yeah, it's, it's, it's a unique object.
1: Well, let's turn to the the princess of Antioch, the rebel Alice, the rebel princess of Antioch, who has a much more frustrating time trying to assert her power than her elder sister does, doesn't she?
2: Yeah. So, yes, Alice does have a much more frustrating time. And what's interesting is that when you peel back the history, you can see that she, she has a lot in common with her sister Melazon. She's a very ambitious woman who's clearly been raised with the expectation that she will rule. And she's married younger than Melisande is. So she's the first of the four sisters to get married. And when she's 16, she's married to the son of Bermond of Taranto, who's the heir to Antioch. And through this marriage, she stops being princess of Jerusalem and she becomes princess of Antioch, or princess consort, actually, because her husband is the one who's inherited the power in that kingdom. And the marriage starts off well. You know, they're both the same age. They have a daughter very quickly. Her name is Constance. She becomes a major player later. But two years into the marriage... Bohm on the second is killed in a conflict in Cilicia and he's beheaded and his head is sent as a trophy to the caliph of Baghdad. And it's it's all very grisly. Mm -hmm. And it suddenly throws Alice's position into question because now she, you know, she's this very high ranking woman, but she doesn't actually have blood claim to the principality of Antioch, except for the fact that, you know, her daughter is the heir. Her daughter is the daughter of Bohm on the second. And Alice is physically there in the city and she wants to take power. But this is, not, this is not going to be entertained by her father, the king of Jerusalem, who's still alive at this point, because Antioch is a frontier state. It's not like Jerusalem. It's not sort of in Christian territory. It's a highly volatile piece of territory that constantly has raids coming into it. That's exactly why Bohemond II didn't last long. It's very mm-hmm. unstable. And he doesn't want his 18-year-old daughter, who isn't trained in military strategy, to be ruling that land. He wants a seasoned military leader there. So, you know, Alice's fate looks pretty sealed. It looks like if her father has his way, she will be pushed into the arms of, you know, the best qualified military commander in town and either either stay as Prince of Antioch in that capacity or she'll just be brought home and either married off to someone else later and put it all put in a nunnery. And these options don't appeal to Alice, so she makes a bid for power and she tries to get the city to side with her and when it doesn't look like she can rally the support she needs, the sources claim that she actually sent a messenger... To the Turkish Emir Zengi, who is the absolute thorn in the side of her father, he's he's his nemesis, and asks to make an allegiance with him in order to repel the King of Jerusalem. But her messenger never gets to Zengi, and her father intercepts it and tortures the messenger, gets the truth out of him, and then marches on Antioch. And well, you know he's far more powerful than his daughter; he's much bigger army, and he takes the city. And Alice is actually dealt with quite leniently; she's not doesn't get any sort of formal punishment in terms of imprisonment or you know. I don't know, having her hand chopped off or anything like this, but she's exiled and she's separated from her daughter, which is quite traumatic, I expect. Um, Mm -hmm. And then a few years later, the other nobles in the kingdom make a bid to take control of their own principalities. So I mentioned there's the Principality of Antioch, the county of Tripoli and the county of Edessa. And in the first generation of crusaders, the lords of these areas really believed they owed allegiance to the king of Jerusalem because he was the one who gave them their lands and they fought alongside each other, all these things. But the next generation, the sons of these men, don't feel the same loyalty to Jerusalem. And they feel quite resentful that the king of Jerusalem is their overlord over these territories. So all the, all the, the second generation crusaders sort of joined together, including Alice, to try and make a bid for independence, independence of their, their territories. Um, and they get pretty close, actually. They make a big dent in Fulk's army. There are conflicts, but ultimately, this, this rebellion is not successful. And Alice is once again ejected from Antioch and banished once again. Then world <laughs> Alice. <laughs> I know, but world the, worst Alice. Come. the worst is yet to come because in her yeah. third attempt, she actually gets into the city again. I think we think her sister sort of put in a good word for her. And she's holding court there, says she's going to be the princess there's it's it's weirdly quiet no one makes a big fuss and so she should have really taken warning at that but she didn't she just thought maybe her her lucky her luck had come at last um and then while her luck you know while she's enjoying this lucky streak this handsome young man arrives at the gates of the city and says why don't we get married he's called Raymond of Poitiers he's coming from France he says why don't we get married and then you know we can rule together and she lets him in and goes to start getting ready for her wedding, because she probably sees the wisdom of what he's saying. if she has a, a strong husband, they're more likely to let her stay in power, and at least she can choose her own husband this way and While she's getting ready for her own wedding, he sneakily marries her daughter, who is eight, so <laughs> while she's you know upstairs you know ordering a feast and you know maybe getting a new dress made or whatever else. Her eight-year-old daughter has essentially been kidnapped and forcefully married to this this man who she thought was going to marry her. And with that wedding, Alice's claims to Antioch go up and smoke because mm-hmm. she's no longer the highest status person in this family. Her eight-year-old daughter now has a husband and her eight-year-old daughter is the heir. So now the husband, Raymond of Poitiers, becomes the prince of Antioch and Alice is banished for a final time. And we don't hear of her again. It seems she dies not long after this. So she really did have a rough time trying to seize power.
1: I think I think the lesson here is beware of Frenchmen at the gates wanting to marry yeah. your daughters.
2: Exactly. Yeah. <laughs> well,
1: and speaking of Frenchmen, um, listeners may not be familiar with Melisande of Jerusalem or Aperoled Alice of Antioch, but I will guess that they have heard of Eleanor of Aquitaine who comes galloping into your narrative with typical panache and she gets into all kinds of trouble um, in Antioch. And you make a point in the book that this is an important encounter for Eleanor and kind of changes the trajectory of her story and I wonder if you can take us through this encounter of the Queen of France and the Queens of Outremer and the effect that it has on Eleanor.
2: Yeah this is a brilliant question um, and it's one that can only really be answered with informed speculation because no one you know given the lack of chroniclers interested in writing about women we don't have you know a great you know play-by-play of what happened when Eleanor met Melisande but we can see a marked change in Eleanor's behavior when she leaves Outremer. Because until this point, she's she's been quite docile and quite unhappy. You know, she's married to the King of France, the marriage isn't going well. And then she comes on crusade, and you know, she's desperately trying to please him and have children and all these things, and it's not it's just not going well at all. And then she comes on crusade, and it's during this this, this adventure. You know, that Eleanor has some really formative experiences. You know, she sees a massacre. The French army is massacred on its way to Jerusalem. I mean, not entirely, but it loses huge chunks of the army and they suffer some really difficult attacks. And then when they're in Antioch, Eleanor becomes the subject of all this very vicious gossip that she's having an affair with her uncle. We don't know if this is true or not, but this is what's being said about her. And she's actually, you know, she's furious with her husband at this time. They separate at this time, they begin living separately. And then her husband kidnaps her to get her away from Antioch and such and such. And she goes to Jerusalem. And what she would have seen there is this incredibly powerful and impressive woman, Queen Melisande, ruling in her own right, you know, sitting in on the very war councils that Eleanor is excluded from. And Mm -hmm. she must, you know, this must have been inspiring. You know, it must have firstly hammered home, like, how little power she actually had and how much power she might be capable of taking for herself. And so it's after this period that we really see her beginning to make a bid for independence. You know, this is when she and the King of France are divorced in the years following this, this outing. And then and it's from there that Eleanor becomes the Eleanor of Aquitaine that we all know about. You know, the wife of Henry Plantagenet, the mother of Richard the Lionheart, you know, take, bringing up rebellions against her husband, holding the kingdom together while people are away. I mean, she's a formidable woman and she starts to step into that characterization after her trip to the East.
1: So I think it's safe to say that she was impressed with what she saw there in terms of female rule and female sort of agency.
2: Exactly. Yes, for sure.
1: Right. Well, let's turn to another group. Um, And you make uh, throughout the book an interesting Ties between Outremer and Byzantium, who are kind of like frenemies, it seems to me. Mm-hmm. Um, um, right, exactly. <laughs> and and the ties are strengthened by a, a number of, of key marriages, Byzantine princesses marrying into the ruling houses, princesses of Outremer going to Byzantium. But I'd wonder, because you know, we can't cover them all, take us through the the colorful life of Theodora Kamene, because she emerges as as a very colorful character who kind of leaps off the page.
2: Thank you, I mean, thanks for asking this because I love being asked to talk about Theodora. She is absolutely the most underrated woman in this book and she has a fantastic (laughs) story and someone needs to make a film of it. Um, First thing to say is that about the marriages, and I love how you put it, the frenemies, I wish I'd written that in my book, but my (laughs) publishers might not, let me, between the relationship between Byzantium and Utreme, yeah, they're definitely frenemies and these marriages should be viewed not so much as marriages in the conventional sense, but an exchange of hostages you know it's ah. not about creating a friendly allegiance it's more you know we're sending a Byzantine princess to live at your court which is going to influence you guys but it also means you know you have something on us and equally you know sending a princess of Outremer to the Byzantine court you know it just it, it, it makes it makes you have to cooperate a little bit more it's an interesting it's an interesting dynamic and Theodora she is by all counts really beautiful I mean the only time William of Tyre, says anything positive about a woman's appearance is Theodora Komnena, So we know she must have been stunning. And she's sent to Outremer to marry King Baldwin III when she's just a young teen. And Baldwin III marries her. And apparently before this point, he's been a complete tomcat, you know, sort of prowling around, having lots of affairs and not really paying attention to ruling the kingdom or being a good king. And then after he marries Theodora, he's completely a reformed man. So she has this sort of magnetic influence on the men who come into contact with her. But then Baldwin dies and he marries Theodora and she's a young teen. And, you know, this can be given as the reason she doesn't have children. You know, one can hope that they didn't consummate the marriage. But maybe they did. Who knows? She's 17 when her husband dies. And at this point, it looks like her life isn't going to be that happy because she inherits the, 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 the city of Acre from her husband on his deathbed, which gives her you know, wealth and status. But what, as long as she doesn't marry, when she dies, the kingdom of Acre will, uh, the, the city of Acre will pass back to the king of Jerusalem. So the new king, Baldwin's brother, her brother-in-law, has absolutely no incentive to allow her to marry again, because if she marries someone else, he might lose control of that kingdom. So it looks like Theodora is just going to essentially be kept in a gilded cage for the rest of her life. When things change for Theodora, is when once again an uncle gallops into her life, and this, this uncle, and we've just we've just got to look past the weird incestuous stuff because it was considered socially acceptable in those days to a degree. It wasn't great, but you could you could get past it, sort of thing. Mm-hmm. Her uncle careens into her life. You know, he's and he's this enigmatic, charismatic figure from the court of Constantinople who's been chucked out of Constantinople for having an affair with another family member, another niece, actually. But, you know, this is one of those big families where there are 500 nieces, so, you know. <laughs> um, and he's chased out of Constantinople into Utreme, and he gets to, he goes to Antioch first, where he seduces Philippa of Antioch, um, who is Constance of Antioch's daughter. We're a few generations later than that, right. so on now. Um, so he's chucked out of Antioch, and then he goes to Jerusalem. And for some reason, the king in Jerusalem takes a liking to him and makes him the lord of Beirut. And while he's in Beirut, he says he's going to make a family visit to his niece in Acre. And so he goes down south to Acre to visit Theodora. And the pair fall in love. And this is not one of, Andro- and his name is Andronicus Comnenus, by the way. This is not one of Andronicus's serial seductions. This is something completely different, which, you know, we can see sort of the power of Theodora's charm working here as well. Because while Andronicus has a history of seducing princesses and then leaving them, he doesn't leave Theodora. Instead, they make a plan to run away together. And we can really see that this is a love match here because Theodora has the city of Acre. She's rich, you know, and Andronicus has the city of Beirut. He is also rich. They have power and wealth here that they've been given. And they, th- they give it all away. They throw it all away in order to be together because they abandon their holdings in Christian territory and make a break for it. And they actually go and live in Muslim territory. They you know nowhere in Christendom will welcome this pair. They're fugitives. And so instead of trying to, you know, get to Europe or, you know, find a Christian ruler willing to give them shelter and such, they actually move into Muslim territory and they live at the court of the Sultan for a long time until eventually they come to Constantinople. And then it gets really complicated. But it is this, incre- it is this bizarre but quite arresting love story um, of this elopement. Um, yeah, it's fascinating.
1: Yeah, and she she is just uh, a phenomenal character um, mm-hmm. in the book. They they are all phenomenal characters, Catherine. I, I just mm-hmm. um it's and it's astonishing the way you bring them. Each has a different character, and with with the way you had to go about kind of constructing their narratives, I, I think you've done a, a really masterful job. Um, and you do the same masterful job on the on the last uh, queen for us to consider, um, and this is Melisandre of Jerusalem's granddaughter, Sibylla. Um and I think for listeners who've seen, um, there's a film called The lot, the Last Kingdom, is it, or is that? No, um,
2: no Last Kingdom is Vikings and Saxons. That's you're right. Thinking of, you're thinking of Kingdom of Heaven with Orlando Kingdom of Heaven
1: with Orlando Bloom, right. Because yes. she's in that, isn't she? Um, yes, and that's she not. That's a kind of cheesy film, but um, it does feature Sibylla. So tell us about Sibylla. Mm-hmm. She's, she's got a lot of tricks up her sleeve, um, but you make the point that she's less prepared to rule. Uh, than her grandmother, and and I wonder if you could take us through why that is.
2: Yeah, of course. And but just before I do, because you've mentioned Kingdom of Heaven, I think it's a good. Yeah. It's actually it's a good thing to just touch on quickly because it is a cheesy film, and mm-hmm. you know the film actually the storyline that Sibylla is given has very little in common with Sibylla's actual life. You know, it's a it's an inaccurate portrayal of Sibylla. but. What it does is it merges elements of Melazon's life with Sibylla's. So Sibylla is okay. perhaps living at a more dramatic time when Jerusalem is in conflict with Saladin and when a Jerusalem eventually falls to Saladin. So she's queen at this most dramatic point in the history of the Crusader kingdoms. But she doesn't. she's not the most compelling character. She doesn't have the most dramatic life. That would be her grandmother Melazon. So actually the film is sort of interestingly accurate in some ways because it doesn't just invent Sibylla's narratives. It takes elements from what's said about her, said about her grandmother and it takes elements from actually Sibylla's legacy. So one of the weirder things that says, is said about Sibylla in later generations, later centuries, is that she killed her own son. You know, there's no evidence for this whatsoever, but it's in sort of 16th century histories. And so the film actually does pluck out these quite interesting textual details and brings them together and it's an entertaining film and it does give Mm -hmm. like a sense of what's going on even if it's not accurate so i don't do it down as much as a lot of other historians do anyway okay yes sybilla was less fit to rule because she was she was her father's first child and she was a girl but the second child was a son and so for the first you know years of sybilla's life it would have been assumed that a her little brother was going to succeed to the throne and B, even if he didn't, her father would have more children and one of them would succeed. You know, He would have other sons. So, but what really isn't planned is that Sibylla's younger brother is diagnosed with leprosy when he's a child. And that's really a death sentence and also a sort of a certainty that he won't marry and have children. And so then her father is still trying to have more children when this diagnosis is made. And Sibylla is also sort of inhabiting this quite difficult space sort of politically, because in order for her father to take the throne, the court demanded that he divorce Sibylla's mother. So Sibylla, and Sibylla's legitimacy is preserved, but she does, you know, her, she, her mother is not the queen of Jerusalem, it's her stepmother who doesn't like her very much. So Sibylla is not raised at the court of Jerusalem going to council meetings in the way that her grandmother was. You know, it's much more likely that she was raised to be a devoted wife, um, or, you know, to bring a, a strong political alliance for her family rather than to actually rule in her own right. And it's never expected that Sibylla would rule. You know, she's married to a very eminent nobleman from Europe, William of Montferrat, and they have a son. So again, it's never expected that Sybilla will rule. It will be her husband or her son, but then, you know, her husband dies and then her son dies. And so it really gets quite desperate. Um, so she just, she isn't, she isn't prepared or trained in the way that Melisande does. She doesn't have the hands-on political work experience that Melisande gets attending council meetings. Um, and Sybilla's raised first and foremost to be a wife, and you know she does that very well. You know she's held up in later generations as one of the most loyal wives of the Middle Ages because she really does stick to her husband like glue. But you know in this instance, it's to the detriment of the kingdom.
1: Right. And can you um, can you tell our listeners what her her little sort of trick at, at her coronation?
2: Yes. So this is this which is I love. Yeah. This is all to do with sticking to her husband like glue. So she has what seems to be a love match with this again a French knight called Guy de Lusignan but everyone hates him and there you know there's conflicting source there's conflicting opinions as to why how they actually managed to get permission to marry but you know some of the sources say that it was essentially a shotgun wedding because they'd had sex already so this quite unsuitable man is married to a princess of the kingdom and becomes the heir to the kingdom through Sibylla but people don't want him to be king so when Sibylla is, when Sibylla's son has died and her brother has died, and they're talking about offering Sibylla the crown, they say, we will make you queen, but on the condition that you divorce your husband. And Sibylla, you know, doesn't like the idea of this at all. But so she, you know, she thinks about it and pulls a face, makes it look like it's very difficult. But she says, okay, I'll accept that if you agree to let me choose my own husband from among the nobles of the kingdom. And also, obviously, I love my husband. I don't want him to be dishonoured, so please make sure he keeps his lands and titles. And they sort of agree. You know, they're like, fine, that's the best compromise we're going to get. And even if she chooses the worst of us to be her husband, there's no one who's going to be as bad as Guy. So Sibylla's coronation goes forward. When And that's a monumentous event, by the way, you know, in its own right, not just for the kingdom of Jerusalem, but also for the history of queenship. You know, this is, this is one of the only examples of a woman, an unmarried woman, being crowned queen regnant in her own right. But, you know, Sibylla's first act as queen is even more surprising because as soon as the holy oil has anointed her, the crown's been put on her head. She's been made God's representative on earth. She announces to the assembled congregation who've just sort of cheered her health and said, long live the queen. I'm going to choose my husband now, and I choose Guy de Lusignan. And there's nothing in the agreement that she's made with the barons before about divorcing Guy that says that she can't choose him again. She's preserved his status as a noble of the kingdom. And got them, you know, to sort of swear in blood that they'll let her choose her own husband from among the nobles of the kingdom. So there's nothing they can do to stop this. This was what they agreed. And so she remarries him on the spot. And she makes this speech quoting the scripture saying, you know, what God has joined together, let no man tear asunder. And so she goes on to become queen and to rule with him as king. Impressive. I mean, yes, just exactly. very impressive. <laughs> and that and that seems like a high
1: watermark um, because it kind of all goes horribly wrong after that um mm, indeed. and poor old Sibylla has to sort of um give things up to to saladin who is another fascinating character in your book but kind of you you keep him very deftly i think on the margins um mm. to which which is good because i, I think he might dominate um
2: He's a fascinating character but there yeah. are there are brilliant books about saladin the most recent by jonathan phillips Go excellent work this is about yeah. the queens <laughs> right well i mean and and and
1: as you um Considered these queens and, and the question that, that I brought up at the beginning of the interview, I'm still left wondering why there's there's not more information about these queens and, and female rulers and why aren't they better known to us now? I mean, now with your book, uh, they are, but um, why not until now?
2: So, you know, it's one of those interesting things I think is to do with trends of interest as much as anything else. The Crusades hmm. are generally considered to be military history. That's the category they're put in because they are a history of military ex- expeditions. Um, and I think you know areas of military history like this traditionally attract male scholars. So and you know it's with it's with the emergence of more female historians that we're getting a better look at women's history because women are more interested in women's history. You know that's not to say they're not also interested in men's history. And you know people have their individual interests. Some women don't care at all about women's history. That's fine. But you know there's a stronger trend for it now that more women are going through university and PhDs and masters programs and enabling them to become historians and so examine this stuff. So. It's partly a social trend in that respect, but you know, it's also that, as I said before, the men writing the chronicles that we have, which are amazing treasure troves of information, just don't give us as much information about the women. So there is less for historians to go on. You know, I don't, I don't necessarily blame male historians who haven't zoomed in on these women very much because there is just so much less material, um, so much less material to go on. You really have to sort of read between the lines and you know hunt hunt chronicles for fleeting references and try and piece it together um and it's actually much easier in the age of control f you know digitized, <laughs> digitized um digitized chronicles and control f it makes it a lot easier to look for every reference to in a chronicle and such but mm-hmm. yeah it's a combination of these factors i think you know there's more interest in women's history so more women are taking the time to comb these chronicles for these references Um, And also, I've got to say, actually, we've got to give some thanks to a male historian, which is a historian called Hans Eberhard Meyer, who did created the seminal essay, you know, 50 pages essay on Queen Melisande about 50 years ago now. And I think that did spark a much greater interest in the queens of Utremer as well as the men. And he did the digging. Uh You know, he was the first person who really delved into what evidence there was about Melisande, what was happening in her reign and sort of reassessed it. And that that's had an impact, you know, that's inspired female scholars and other scholars to go and chase up other references to other Queens and such. So, yeah.
1: Inter- fascinating. I, w- I wonder if you have a favorite of these Queens.
2: Oh, it's so hard. I mean, I bet it is. <laughs> uh, it should be Melisande. You know, I spent yeah. more time with Melisande than any of the other Queens, but you know, in a weird way, it's probably Constance of Antioch, who we haven't, mm. we haven't talked about at all, but she's Alice's right. daughter and she's sort of, much more, she's quietly successful in many ways. You know, she sort of, she managed, instead of sort of outright sticking in her heels and going to war with her male relatives, she just sort of manages to outmaneuver them a few times and to manage, manages to stay single and in power a lot longer than, than her mother, for example. Um, and I, I do think the second generation, you know, I'm more, you know, the, the relationship between mothers and daughters is so interesting. So with someone like Constance, you always wonder what her mother, what influence her mother's career had on her own. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Also, of course, Theodora. I love Theodora. But Theodora's great. Queen <laughs> in the same way.
1: Tell me what you're working on now. You are currently in Lebanon.
2: Yes, I'm in Tyre. Yeah. where I'm, uh-huh. at, so I'm, I'm working on this really, really lovely, this book's lovely to write, um, about the forgotten capitals of the Mediterranean. So I'm oh, sort of trying right. to yeah, it's like I'm sort of trying to tell the the stories of the afterlives of the great cities of antiquity. So, you know, cities that were once global power centers but have now declined. And, you know, why that's happened and what effect that's had in, the, in this region. And it was absolutely inspired by the travel I did for Queens of Jerusalem because it was when I was researching Queens of Jerusalem that I first came to Tyre and became aware of its amazing history from the Phoenicians to Alexander the Great to the Crusades to now, you know. Um, and likewise with Antioch, Antakia, as it's known today, is one of the cities in this book. And I'm going there next week, actually. So oh, wonderful. It's, yeah, it's lovely. And I, I hope it'll be a good book. Yeah.
1: Well, I, I, I'm, I know it will be a good book. And I hope you'll come back and talk to us about it when it's finished.
2: When 100%, 100%. 100%. Okay, good. <laughs> Tell,
1: Catherine, before we go, um, where can our readers find out more about you and Queens of Jerusalem?
2: Oh, thanks. Well, you know, uh, Google search will give you lots of outlets for Queens of Jerusalem. But... Um, Yes, uh, I have a website, which is Um Pretty pretty easy to work out. And also I'm on Instagram. Uh, people can follow me. It's my handle is Katie, K-A-T-I-E underscore underscore P-A. So yes, please follow me. <laughs>
1: Okay, and it's a great account, um, um, for sure. Okay, well, the book is, again, Queens of Jerusalem from Orion Books, and we've been talking with Catherine Pangonis, and it has been a real pleasure um, to speak with you. Thank you for spending this time with us.
2: Thank you very much.
1: I'm your host, Jennifer Yerimeyeva, and I will be back very soon to discuss another new book with its author, and thank you so much for listening.